we are, we're just about halfway through our, our summer sermon series where we are uh, looking at diff- overviews of different biblical books. And today, as, as Pastor Tim mentioned, today our focus is the Gospel of Mark. And, and I want to start, uh, start this morning by saying that even though I preached through this entire book four years ago, and even though Mark writes in a way that, that's, that's very fast-paced and eventful, I found my sermon for today the most difficult to prepare in this uh, in the series so far, and it really surprised me as I was getting into it. Um, and, and, and I think part of the reason I was finding it difficult was that there's just so much that can be said when it comes to the life of Jesus. I mean, everything in the Bible either flows toward Jesus, is about Jesus, or it flows from Jesus. I mean, he, he is the crux of the story of redemption. And so to, to compress the totality of Jesus into a single sermon, I was finding difficult, oddly enough. Right? You know, as I say that statement, I, I realize I probably shouldn't have been surprised at the difficulty of that task. But, but the Holy Spirit was, uh, was faithful as he, uh, as he is in my preparation. And, and what we're going to do this morning is, uh, as we look at the Gospel of Mark, it's not going to be an exhaustive study of Jesus, but a purposeful one. So the Gospel of Mark is one of just four Gospels in the Bible. All four Gospels speak of the life of Jesus. They record the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus. But even though all four Gospels are about the same Jesus, they, they all present Jesus in a purposeful way. Each picture of Jesus is true, and each picture is unique. So what I want to do this morning is focus on the purposeful and unique way in which the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write his gospel about Jesus. And as I do that, I know, I know that there are themes which are most prevalent in Mark that come up in the other gospels. And likewise, the themes which are most prevalent in the other Gospels come up in Mark, too, as we might expect. But the prominent theme that we will focus on today is the way in which Mark presents Jesus as the Messiah who is a suffering servant. Mark really hones in on that. And so, so I, turn with me to Mark, uh, chapter 1. I'd encourage you to do that. And we'll see this theme unfold for us. Mark, chapter 1, is page 836 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow there. Mark begins chapter 1 by stating that he's presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says that right off the bat. And so two things to note about that statement. First, Mark is not being secretive about the identity of Jesus. In his, in his very first sentence, he tells us the term Christ means anointed one. It, it means Messiah. 
And he also says that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is divine. So, so as we read through his gospel, Mark wants us to know right from the start who it is that we are reading about. So we can note that. And then the second thing to note is this term, gospel, Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that term wasn't exclusively a religious term at that time. Now, now today, gospel is usually thought of in that way, but, but in that Greco-Roman context, gospel was used in, in other ways as well. So that word conveyed a message of good news, and it was especially utilized in connection to a king's ascension to the throne. So it was used to promote the idea that the reign of the new king meant good news for the people of the land. And you might say at times gospel was propaganda because the, the reign of the king being good news was really more good news for the king and, and the people that were closely associated with him. And what the king proclaimed as good news might actually be increased taxes or greater oppression for, for the common person. But, but regardless, the term was often one employed by powerful rulers to characterize their reign and rule. Now, we don't know whether Mark's gospel was written to those who did or did not yet believe in Jesus, probably both. It was meant to probably strengthen the faith of those who already believed in Jesus as the Messiah and to present the truth of Jesus to those who didn't yet believe. So it probably had that dual purpose. So when Mark says that his book is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it very well could have been that those who weren't familiar with Jesus assumed that this was a public declaration similar to that of a Roman ruler and their gospel message about their reign. And because Roman rulers ruled with force and coercion, that may have been what some people expected Jesus to do as well. Well, if here's this gospel message about Jesus, you know, how's he going to be forcing himself upon the kingdom? So, so what Mark faced with his, uh, in his book is, is, is presenting Jesus as the true Messiah, who is the Son of God, but yet as a Messiah who was different than what might have been expected. And one way to divide Mark's gospel is, is seeing him affirming that Jesus is the true Messiah from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up through chapter 8, verse 30. And then from that point on, revealing what kind of Messiah he was. So it's one way you can divide it up and you can see in the sermon notes that I've, I've done it that way and we'll, we'll go through it that way this morning. So, so in the first dozen verses of chapter one, Mark shows Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and he does so by recording different people proclaiming that. Okay, so if you look at, at verses one through 12 there, in, verses, uh, in verse two and three, Mark, uh, uh, Mark quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Now in the book of Isaiah, Chapters 1 through 39 in the book of Isaiah contain all these words from God of, of rebuke and judgment and warning 
concerning the, uh, the nation of Israel's rejection of God. Those chapters are filled with that. There's, there's words of hope in those chapters too, but, but the overarching theme is one of judgment in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah. But then in chapter 40, Isaiah speaks powerfully about hope. There's a major shift in Isaiah chapter 40. Even though the people would be sent into exile to Assyria and to Babylon because of their rejection of God, God would redeem his people by bringing them back to himself. He promises to do that. And there would be this voice who would arise and proclaim this time for redemption. That's what Isaiah is talking about in the verses that, that uh, Mark quotes here. What Isaiah prophesied, this voice who would come, that came to pass in the person of John the Baptist. John was that voice. He came, he proclaimed that the time had come for the forgiveness of sins. That was John's message. If you continue down through those verses, uh, verse, verses 9, 10, and 11, Jesus at his baptism, there's a voice from heaven that proclaims Jesus to be the beloved son. And that voice from heaven is God the Father himself speaking. And then a little bit farther in verse 12 and 13, uh, during 40 days of fasting and tempting in the wilderness, we are told that angels ministered to Jesus. So, so what we see is right off the bat, we see Mark himself, Isaiah, John the Baptist, God's voice from heaven, and angels all telling us that this Jesus is no ordinary man. In fact, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. All these voices right off the bat are proclaiming that. And what all those voices proclaim, Mark then goes on to affirm in the first eight chapters. And the way in which he affirms Jesus' identity is through highlighting both Jesus' miracles and his teaching. So when we think about Jesus' miracles, they, they reveal that he possesses the power of God. He, he did supernatural things that could not be explained through ordinary means. Jesus drove unclean. He drove evil spirits out of people. He, he performed exorcisms. Uh, and when those took place, the, the person who was freed from demonic oppression changed dramatically in a positive way. Jesus healed illnesses and injuries, things that were often lifelong ailments or, or things that, that usually resulted in death were made right by Jesus. A young girl was even brought back to life after she died through God's power at work in Jesus. And Jesus also showed his power and his authority over creation. He multiplied a single meal to feed a crowd of thousands, and he did it twice, right? He, he, he calmed a storm. He walked on water. All these are miracles of Jesus, and, and perhaps the greatest miracle, and one which is difficult to prove in and of itself, is when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralyzed man who was brought to him. 
You can't see sins being forgiven with our physical eyes. So to prove the validity of his words of forgiveness, Jesus then healed the man's physical body. He essentially said, well, you can't see that his sins are forgiven, but I'll show you this so that you know that the other one is true as well. Now, now, now a person can try to explain away by natural means all of those things. But the reality is Jesus performed miracles, which not only benefited the recipients of those miracles, but they also pointed to his identity. Did so for all those who were watching the miracles take place. How great would that have been to have seen it with our own physical eyes? But it also points to his identity for all who heard about what took place, heard about the miracles that Jesus did. And that group, the group that heard about the miracles Jesus did, that includes us too. Not just the person who was alive then and somebody came and said, oh, did you, did you hear about what Jesus did in the street today? Includes them, but it includes us reading about these miracles in Mark's gospel. We are confronted with the miracles Jesus performed and we must decide what it means that Jesus did all of those things. Those miracles are something which we ought not ignore. We might try to explain away each miracle, but, but this book, right, that, which has showed itself true over and over and over again through the centuries, it records truth. Jesus really did those miracles that Mark writes about. So what does that mean? We, we have to ask ourselves that question. What does that mean that Jesus did all those things? So Mark gives us all of these miracles pointing to the identity of Jesus, but it's not just his miracles. Mark gives us teachings of Jesus as well. Teachings that reveal Jesus to be the Messiah, the Son of God. So, for example, when, when Jesus was asked why his disciples didn't fast from food like the religious, uh, like the, relig the disciples of the religious leaders did, Jesus declared himself to be the bridegroom. And that, that statement connects back to something that Isaiah wrote. Listen, listen to one of the prophecies that Isaiah wrote. In Isaiah chapter 62, verse 4, Isaiah says this. He says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah uses this picture of a bridegroom to talk about God rejoicing over his people. And Jesus then spoke of himself as the divine bridegroom who rejoices over his people. So in that teaching, Jesus is claiming divinity. Jesus was confronted about his, his practices on the Sabbath, and he proclaimed his authority over the Sabbath in his response. 
something which God himself had instituted, not, not just in the Ten Commandments, but all the way back in creation when God rested from his work on the seventh day. Another time, Jesus was questioned about eating with unwashed hands, something which went back to the purification laws of the Old Testament. And what Jesus did is he drilled down even farther to talk about where true uncleanness comes from, from within ourselves. Jesus says it is our sinful hearts which produce the things that truly make us defiled before God. And it was Jesus' authority which allowed him to speak about the real meaning of those Old Testament purity laws. When Jesus spoke in parables, he, he, he would talk about the kingdom of God. And when he did so, it was in a way which conveyed his knowledge of the kingdom of God and his authority over the kingdom of God. Um, those who, those who uh, heard all these teachings from Jesus, those who were confronted with the authority with which Jesus made these teachings, they had a decision to make. I mean, either Jesus was crazy and claiming authority that he did not have, or he was the wisest person who ever walked the earth and did possess the authority that he claimed in his teaching. There's no middle ground there. There really isn't. He's not just someone interesting to listen to. He's either a lunatic and a liar, or he is who he claims to be, the Messiah, Son of God. Those are our two options in that. But again, it's not just those who physically heard with their ears Jesus give those teachings at that time. It's not just them who has to make a decision. It's us as well. We read Jesus' teaching in Mark's words. We too must decide whether we hold Jesus to be a lunatic and a liar or the Messiah, the Son of God. And all throughout Mark's gospel, we see people confronted with that decision. And all throughout Mark's gospel, we see people responding to Jesus' miracles and his teachings. Sometimes the response is a positive one. So Peter, James, John, they, they left everything to follow Jesus when he called them. Uh, Levi, when he, when he sat in his tax collector's booth, he got up and left when Jesus called him to follow him. Um, a demon-possessed man whom Jesus healed begged Jesus to let him come with him. Positive responses from people. Other times, the responses were negative. The religious scribes attributed Jesus' power to Jesus himself being possessed by a demon. That's how they tried to write it off. Uh, when Jesus healed a demon-possessed man and, and sent the demons into a herd of pigs, the people of that region, they begged Jesus to leave. They just wanted him gone. Uh, when the Pharisees heard about Jesus' miracles, they, they demanded that he perform one for them on the spot. Uh, when they heard his teachings, they questioned his authority. When Jesus' own family and people from his hometown saw what was taking place, they took offense and tried to get Jesus to stop what he was doing. So there were negative responses to Jesus. 
But what Mark shows us is that his identity demands a response. And not just from the people then, but, but from us as well. How will we respond to all that Mark presents about Jesus being the Messiah? But before we answer the question, we ought to have all the facts. Remember, I said the first eight chapters are largely where Mark affirms that yes, Jesus is truly the Messiah. But one of the things that, that stands out in the first half of Mark's gospel is, is the number of times where Jesus would tell people not to speak about the things they've seen, not to speak about what they've heard. It, it's sometimes referred to as the secret of the Messiah. Why would Jesus do that? Why, why, why perform great miracles and give profound teachings and then tell people not to speak about it for the time being. Why would he do that? And the reason is because the people then and we as well, we need to not just know that Jesus is the Messiah, but also what kind of Messiah he is. So starting in chapter eight, verse 31, Mark records how Jesus began to reveal that what kind of Messiah he is. Mark 8, 31, it says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Three times Jesus spoke with his disciples about his approaching death. Jesus spoke about anyone who is first needing to be servant of all. He said that he himself came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom or a payment for many. Jesus welcomed the children, those who were considered unimportant in that context. He welcomed them to come to him. Uh, Jesus called the rich young man to sacrifice everything and come follow him. Jesus told the parable about the tenants in a vineyard. And in the parable, the son of the vineyard owner was killed. And when the people heard the story, they knew exactly who it was that Jesus was talking about. Himself being killed by the religious leaders. Uh, when a woman anointed Jesus with costly perfume, Jesus stated that she was preparing his body for burial. All of these statements about the Messiah coming to serve and sacrifice and give his life come together then in the final three chapters of Mark's gospel. When Jesus sat in the upper room with his disciples on the night that he would be arrested, they observed communion for the very first time. Jesus told them that the, the, that the bread being broken symbolized his body being crucified and the juice being poured out symbolized his blood being poured out of him on the cross. And then after that, 
Jesus was then arrested, put on trial, falsely accused, beaten, sentenced to death, and finally nailed up on a cross and left to die. That's not a typical Roman-style gospel message in any way. <laughs> That's not what kings would proclaim when they were making these gospel statements. The Messiah, the Son of God, and a gospel message about him wouldn't have been expected to include things about being brutally beaten and humiliated and killed. That wasn't a normal gospel message, but that was exactly what happened to Jesus, who was the Messiah, but was the suffering servant Messiah. And the reason that kind of gospel message truly is a gospel message, truly is good news, is this. First, that's not the end of the story. Jesus is dying on the cross. He didn't stay dead. When they took his body down from the cross and laid it in the tomb, that was not his final resting place. On the third day, he rose from the dead as, a, as alive as he had ever been. He showed his victory over death. Talk about good news. That's a gospel message right there. Forget the Roman gospel messages. That's the true gospel message. Jesus rising from the dead. But there's more, than, there's more to the good news than that. Jesus' death on the cross means that the penalty for our sins is paid. It's paid because, because our God is holy and just, there is a penalty that needs to be paid. Romans 6.23 tells us the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus, who uh, himself did not sin, died in our place so that we might be set free from that punishment. All that's required is, is we repent and believe what Mark records for us. That we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. That we accept him as the Messiah who took our punishment so that we can be forgiven. More good news, I mean, more gospel message right there. You know, it's, it's rather ironic, I think, that, that uh, chapter one contains all these statements about Jesus' identity. All these statements from Mark himself and Isaiah, John the Baptist, God's voice from heaven, the angels are there. But the last person to affirm his identity is from someone completely different from that, completely unexpected from that. Someone actually who would have given gospel messages as a part of his job at times. In chapter 15, verse 39, it is a centurion, a Roman soldier, who was present at Jesus' crucifixion Maybe even the one who drove the nails into Jesus' body. We don't know that for sure, but it sure could have been. Upon Jesus' death, he's the one that stated, truly, 
this man was the son of God. We have a Roman centurion making his decision as Jesus hung on the cross. Even though things happened differently than what people might have expected, what, what Mark records for us and proclaims to us is that Jesus was still the Messiah. He was still the Son of God. You know, I said earlier, all, all throughout the book, we see people either accepting Jesus for who he is or rejecting Jesus, and it continues right up until the very end. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, there's the women who went to Jesus' tomb on that first Easter morning, and, and they found it empty. Well, not exactly true. They found Jesus gone, and an and angelic being was there. It was empty of Jesus. And this angelic being had a message for the women. Jesus is alive. He's alive. Go tell the disciples that he's alive. But Mark tells us that the women left in fear and told no one. Now, we know they eventually went on to tell people because the message got out. But Mark leaves it hanging right there. He almost puts the ball in our court and says, okay, you've been given this message. Jesus is alive. Now, what are you going to do with it? So two questions for us to think about in response to that. First, do I believe the message about Jesus that I've been told? Do I believe what took place 2,000 years ago? What Mark recorded for us? What has been passed down for those 2,000 years? Do I believe that? Do I accept Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross for sins and then rose from the dead? Do I believe that? It's the most important question you'll ever be asked. And then second, now that the message of Jesus is meant to be told to everyone, not, not kept secret like it was in the first part of the gospel while things were being revealed, but now that it's meant to be told to everyone, will I tell those who need to hear it? Will I tell them the gospel of Jesus? Do I believe so thoroughly what Mark has written that I'm compelled to tell others about it? Those are questions that, that we ought to ask ourselves as we interact with Mark's gospel, what he wrote about the suffering servant Messiah. As you can see, we're going to participate in communion this morning, um, and I'll ask the elders to come forward. As we do this together, communion is, is not just a reminder that Jesus is the Messiah. It is that reminder. But it is also a reminder of what kind of Messiah Jesus is. He is one who loves us so much that he suffered and died for us. It's what the broken bread and the juice represent.
So if, you, if you're here this morning and you believe and accept that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose from the dead, then please participate with us. You don't need to be a member of our local church here. You only need to call Jesus your Lord and Savior. Um, if you're here and you've come to believe what Mark shares about Jesus for the very first time, if you've come to say, yes, I do believe that, then please join us in participating. What a, what a great way to celebrate new life in Jesus. Um, and if you're here and, and you're not quite sure that you believe and accept the things Mark wrote about Jesus, then, then please let, let the bread and let the juice pass by. We love you. You're welcome here. But communion is, is something that's only for those who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is a declaration that we agree with the statement made by the centurion that Jesus truly is the Son of God. So let's participate in this together.